From Georgetown University, this is Seeking Peace. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is General Kristen Lund. In all the conflict areas I've been to, you know, um, 50% of the population are women. So if you don't take the women into consideration, if you don't have both, you are not able to fulfill your mandate. As simple as that. General Lund made history in 2014 when she became the highest-ranking female commander in the United Nations. Ladies and gentlemen, I congratulate the Major General Kristen Lund. Today she makes history at the United Nations. In our six and a half decades of UN peacekeeping operations, we have had the scores of male force commanders, but she's our first woman in that position. I have found time and again that the best person for the job is often a woman. So rarely does that job go to a woman. But in General Lund's case, she has overseen peacekeeping missions all over the world. And now more and more women are joining their country's security forces. Later in this episode, we will hear from Ukrainian women who are joining the National Police Force to very positive results. But first, General Lund, who knows better than anyone what it takes to be a woman responsible for keeping the peace. I recently spoke to her from her offices in Jerusalem. Hello, and I wonder if you could please introduce yourself. Yes, I'm Christine Lund, and I'm the head of uh, mission and chief of staff of uh, United Nations Truth Supervision Organization. When you joined the military, General Lund, were you treated differently? Did you feel that you belonged? Was it, was it very hard as a woman to be in this space? Yeah, it, it was hard. And I'm quite sure very many that started early, you know, in the end of the 70s, 80s, uh, you know, they had to work as hard, do as uh, dub, twice as good a job as, as your male colleague. You couldn't fail. Um, and also sometimes when you were, you know, on one maneuver, I was the only one with, uh, and there was 6,000 men. And then you become a kind of a mascot instead of, you know, they treat you uh, like you are an egg, you know, and, and are, you are not treated the same way. And of course, uh, I have heard so many times that, well, you have been, uh, you have been a quota or a quota to get in. That was always used against us that, you know, why should you be here? Uh, because everybody was thinking about the physical strength instead of what you have between your ears. I know that you and so many women uh, who have also been uh, moving forward in the ranks of the military have often wondered, uh, you know, why is it so difficult for male peers uh, to understand that women are on equal terms? Uh, do you think this is finally changing, albeit slowly? Yes, I think it's it's changing. But you know, when you come into a typical male-dominated area that has been there uh, area for so many years and very often when females get in there you take down what you think this has been all about it's, it become not as tough because women can also do it uh, so uh, there's been a lot of resistance among our colleagues you know um, is actually changing and I it's 
it has to change in society. It's not just within the military. I, I remember once reading about an incident in the Balkans when you were an uh, operations officer. As I recall, you had to evacuate the headquarters in Sarajevo. It was not a happy Easter in Sarajevo. You were leading a convoy in the midst of uh, shelling. In recent days, the people of Sarajevo have been subjected to artillery and mortar attacks by Serbian militiamen and the regular Yugoslav, mainly Serbian army. This was the, not the last, but the second last uh, convoy out of Sarajevo in 1992. And as uh, a woman, you know, you like to have it nice around you. So I uh, have bought a lot of uh, plants to actually plant in our headquarter um, to make it nice. But we had to evacuate because of all the shelling. And, um, and then I didn't want to leave all the plants because we were not able to get all our equipment that was kind of another staging area that we couldn't reach. So we had some room in our car. So my car uh, with the deputy uh, commander of the unit was then filled up in, in the back with a lot of plants, green plants and some uh, nice baskets and then um, he was so angry and said you know you cannot bring that you know you know but we have space so i just did i also picked a female driver and then we started and uh, and you know the first checkpoint we got to they kind of leaned down and and asked and, and of course you have learned uh, some of the language just to say uh, you know good morning and so on and uh, they looked into the car and saw this uh, grumpy guy sitting in the back seat with a lot of uh, plants and flowers around and they start laughing and they just waved us through. That happened more or less in every checkpoint. And first of all, just to have the two females in the front was good and this uh, guy. But in the end of the, uh, on the trip, he also realized that these plants um, was a big effect. So uh, then he was more kind of taking care of them and said, no, don't drive too fast. You know, the plants are, are, uh, can break, you know. So it was quite uh, nice and, and to see that uh, uh, he understood that it is possible to have other ways of doing things. General Lund, in many ways, your service uh, demonstrates the importance of having women participate in the military, and yet this is often questioned as still something that should just be optional, that is not a necessity, uh, that it doesn't contribute to operational effectiveness. Can you give us a sense from your own experience how women's participation has been essential to the objectives and the goals that were put forward for those missions. In all the conflict areas I've been to, you know, um, 50% of the population are women. So if you don't take the women into consideration, um, in Afghanistan, for example, we really tried to get female interpreters, but we were not able. So we invited international NGOs formed a network. After a while, we were uh, so good acquaintance that they offered to lend us their interpreters. So then we could go on patrols with interpreters and we got so much information. Very soon also the intelligence wondered how we could get so diverse information. And that was quite clear because, you know, we, we were able then to get from the whole society, not only 50 percent. 
And uh, I must say that also from uh, from my uh, other experience in, especially in uh, Muslim countries, if you don't have both, you are not able to fulfill your mandate. As simple as that. It's been 40 years since Turkish troops invaded Cyprus, leaving the island divided. Nicosia, Cyprus's largest city, remains the only divided capital in Europe. But there is some evidence things may be changing. In 2014, you made history as the first woman ever to serve as a force commander in a UN peacekeeping mission. In this case, it was in Cyprus. So why was there a peacekeeping mission in Cyprus? Well, that was because of, uh, in uh, 1964, there were violence on the island and uh, between the uh, Turkish Cypriot and the Greek Cypriot. And it was decided then to send UN mission. And then in 74, it was created a buffer zone. And uh, the UN then uh, operates and, and oversee that the mandate is fulfilled within the, the, this uh, buffer zone. When I was force commander, I represent UN in all the operations I have been uh, taking part in. And I have to, you know, when it comes to human rights, protection of civilians, um, and a lot of protection of civilians is very often uh, women, children, and all because the men are out fighting or are killed. So that's why it's so important to have female in the UN forces. And when I was force commander, I put that point on the top agenda. Every meeting I had with representatives, if it was political or military visitors from different nations, to tell them that we needed more women. In all the missions, I've been able to raise the percentage of women. So it's possible if you always put it not at the last point that very many do, you know, then there's the gender issue. Instead of putting it straight up on the top. Well, do you think that um, part of the problem continues to be the fact that we um, still too often perceive women in conflict areas as victims and not as resources, not as the leaders uh, that they are and could be in peace building? Absolutely. I, I, th I never, you know, now when I'm around, I, when I see women around, I see them as a resource. Uh, I will say in very many conflict areas, they are untapped resource. For decades, there have been allegations of sexual abuse and exploitation by UN peacekeepers. It's clear it's still going on. Let's uh, talk a little bit about one of the problems um, that the UN peacekeeping missions are still struggling with, and that is the whole issue of sexual abuse. In Haiti, where the UN's had a peacekeeping mission for over a decade, the report found UN soldiers had what it calls transactional sex with more than 200 women. How do you train troops about sexual exploitation and assault? I think it's very important that you, as a force commander, dare to talk about these things with your commanders. You know, Also, I uh, needed to know which of the countries that contribute with forces what kind of uh, laws do they have when it comes to prost uh, prostitution? Was prostitution legal? So I, I went so detailed, and then I knew I had countries that prostitution was legal. And then, you know, you have to go directly on that commander and tell him that 
now you are serving for UN as zero tolerance and uh, and and not once you had to kind of uh, deal with that all the time. You know, I'm wondering what you think in terms of uh, the progress that we've been undergoing in advancing the role of women in peace and security. What more do you think we can all be doing to ensure greater progress in this space? Because uh, you would agree it's not just about progress for women to make, but the difference that it also makes uh, for all of society. I, I agree. Um, and I think we that have come up to these positions need to really try to empower other women. We need also to talk to our male colleagues and and try to convince them that uh, they also need to, to support this process. If you get the men convinced that this is the, the, the way ahead and the best way because uh, you, you will have better result, uh, you will be having, you know, sustainable peace, for example, you know, because you involve the whole society, I'm quite sure that who can say no to that? Well, I think that's a powerful reminder. It's really been an honor speaking with you, General Lund. We wish you well. We wish you continued success. And thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you very much for asking me to contribute. It's been an honor. General Lund is currently serving as the head UN military observer in the UN mission that monitors the ceasefire between Israel and Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. She is the first woman to lead the mission since it was formed in 1948. The work of sustaining peace doesn't start and stop at the international level. The people who work to keep us safe on our city streets and country roads are the first line of defense. In Ukraine, prior to 2015, there were more than 450 jobs that were off limits to women. But when the Russian-backed government was toppled, many of those jobs became available to them including in policing. In collaboration with the radio show The World, reporter and producer Allison Herrera brings us the story of the first women to join the police force in Ukraine. That sound, it's not a happy one. That's a police officer printing off a traffic ticket. In a touristy area of Kiev, 27-year-old patrol police company commander Yaroslava Trushina is issuing this ticket to a driver who was caught going the wrong way on a one-way street. I get enjoyment from my work. My work is a bit of everything. It's always new every day. Moments of rest interrupted by shots of adrenaline. Issuing tickets may not be a big adrenaline rush, but that's not all she does. Robbery, gang activity, murder, anything is possible. When I leave my home in the morning, I'm calm and quiet. I don't share my work stress with my family. I've learned to control my emotions. Lieutenant Trushina is fairly new to the force. She's been on the job for three years. 
That's because before 2015, she wouldn't have been allowed to be a patrol officer. Then the country went through a massive change. Ukrainians took to the streets to oust Russian-backed President Viktor Yanukovych in what was called the Euromaidan, or Revolution of Dignity. And with the new government came new opportunities for women. The Ministry of Health lifted a decades-old ban on women entering up to 450 professions. Now women can drive trucks, operate farming equipment, and yes, be beat cops. And women make up 21% of the national police force. For Lieutenant Turshina, it's a dream come true. She manages a unit of 60 officers. Most of them are men. If they're late, they have to do 50 push-ups on the ground. I can't keep repeating myself to everyone throughout the day, so I decided to institute push-ups. Women like Lieutenant Trushina are helping to reshape the image of the police in Ukraine, which up until recently had the reputation of being a corrupt institution. There is the perception that women are more trustworthy, but as Trushina points out, it's going to take a lot more than just female officers to fight corruption and restore trust. When police reform began, a police officer earned around $350 a month. Now earnings have gone up to 380 But the cost of living has tripled. This is not a dignified salary. And you often hear from officers that the low pay makes them susceptible to the temptation of corruption. When women were initially recruited and trained, the story made international news. Female officers sporting red lipstick and perfect nails posed for selfies with people on the street. Lieutenant Trushina posed for her fair share of selfies. She's tall, thin, with long hair and steely blue eyes. But she says that all she cares about is being a good cop. During the first year, yes, they took selfies. But now people are afraid to approach me. I usually tell people, go take pictures with the male officers. Lieutenant Trushina and women like her were trained with the help of U.S. tax dollars. After the Euromaidan revolution, the Obama administration committed $20 million to help the Ukrainian government implement reforms in law enforcement. But there are some problems money can't solve, like the perception that women are weak. I had a situation when a petite woman joined the force. The boys were afraid to partner with her during night shift. When I told them that she was just like me, I asked why they're not afraid to respond to crimes with me, but are asking not to work with this girl. Trushina, like her fellow officers, has high hopes for the new police force. For her, it's not only about battling stereotypes. It's about making law enforcement better for everyone, including her own daughter. Lieutenant Trushina is a single mom. For a long time, I saw the problems in law enforcement, and now I have an opportunity to bring change. I want my child to be able to grow up going outside, playing, and not to be scared. That story was brought to us by the world. Next time on Seeking Peace, we hear from Monica McWilliams, one of only two women at the table for the Good Friday Agreement that brought peace to Northern Ireland. 
Seeking Peace is a production of Georgetown University's Institute for Women, Peace, and Security and Hard Listening Media. Our associate producer is Ali Post. The show is edited by Ibi Caputo and sound designed by Sarah Curtis. Our production manager is Sarah Rutherford, and our executive producer is Kate Osborne. Original music is composed by Allison Layton Brown. This show was made possible by the Compton Foundation. We are a new series, and if you liked what you heard, please share with your friends and family and leave us a rating on iTunes. It helps other people find us.